0: If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn in them to Ecclesiastes? And today we'll be in chapter six, Ecclesiastes six. Good morning to you, all you dads. Happy Father's Day! I'll um, say a little bit more about that. In fact, I think I'll say a lot about that this morning. But I hope that today, I almost started this with a dad joke, but I'm showing incredible restraint up here. So I want you to know that. That's for you. That's for you to not do that. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Our text is going to be the whole chapter. It's actually not our text, and I'll explain that in a moment. But let me read this to you. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place? To the one place? All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Whatever has come has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Let's, let's pray again. Father, we, we long in our hearts for what is not a mere breath. We long for that. Many of us spend our whole lives looking for that, only to find a shepherding of the wind. Many parents will teach their children to do just that, to attempt to shepherd the wind. Meanwhile, the glories of Christ are lost on us. Oh, may it not be so for us. May our hearts be attuned to Christ this morning. May we look to Jesus and to Jesus alone. Lord, I thank you for the dads in this room, especially the ones who love Christ and follow Jesus and love their wives and love the church and love their children. What a precious gift that is. And for those who don't in one of those areas, Lord, I pray today you would challenge them and encourage them and tune their hearts to sing your praise. Help me, Father, to preach this morning as if this is my very last sermon. I don't know, maybe it is. Maybe tonight you'll require my soul from me. Help me to preach your word and exalt in Christ. And I pray for these, your people, Help them to listen with their hearts, attuned to your word, to Christ. This might be the very last sermon they ever hear. Lord, I I pray that we would know, I pray that we would recognize that our lives are but vapors so that we might look to Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So again, I'd like to begin by wishing you fathers in this room a happy Father's Day. I'm actually thankful for one good thing Richard Nixon did two years before my birth when he signed the bill that made Father's Day a national holiday. It's good for us to take a day and recognize and celebrate and honor fathers. I think one of the root causes for many of the social ills we face today is Father's not being fathers. Oh, how we need godly fathers, men who love Jesus, men who love the church, men who love their wives, men who love their children. What a calling we have before us, men. What a calling. What a calling. In light of Father's Day and the fact that we're right in the middle of our summer walkthrough of this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, I thought it might be good to divert from the path a bit this morning and review where we've gone so far in this amazing, life-changing, mind-blowing book, the book of Ecclesiastes. So I read to you chapter 6, and I'm not going to do what I would normally do, and that would be to exposit that passage for you. I think much of chapter 6 is intended to emphasize the big picture of Ecclesiastes. He returns to many themes that he's emphasized already. There is a word to fathers there, and it would be worth spending some time pulling it out. But he hits many of the themes that we've covered already. So instead today, I will offer dads, and moms too, but especially dads, seven lessons that you must teach your children. And your grandchildren. Seven lessons from the book of Ecclesiastes that we will, if we want to be truly successful as parents, press into our children's hearts so that they might not waste their lives. Isn't that what being a dad is all about? I mean, isn't that what being a mom is about, too? Are we not to raise our children so that they might not waste their lives? So I want to help you this morning, fathers, as one learning dad to many others. I want to help you know what to teach your children. And I'm going to draw all of the wisdom, not from the shallow brooks of my limited fathering experience, but from the inspired by God wisdom of King Solomon. I don't mind telling you that I'm still very much learning. We have four children. Our oldest is 20 and our youngest is nine. And I'm still learning what it means to be a godly father. I'm at that stage, though, where I can clearly see how vapor like my time with my children is, how quickly they grow and how quickly they go. I don't want to waste my moment with them or the influence that God has given me over their lives. It's hard to see that, why they're still small. Fathers with small dads, moms with small small kids. (laughs) Moms with small dads. (laughs) It's hard to see that when they're small. It's not hard to see that now for me. So honestly, I'm preaching this as much to myself this morning as I am to you. As we walk through these, no matter where you are in life, if you're a father, a mother, a grandparent, even a college or high school student, Younger even, I want you to consider what these lessons mean for your life. The fact that I have aimed them at fathers does not mean that the rest of us can take a nap. These are lessons steeped in wisdom and meant for all of us. Parents, consider what these lessons mean for both your life and for the way that you parent. What should these lessons teach us about how we should do school and church and sports and summer vacation how should we parent in light of Ecclesiastes really that's the question i'm posing this morning how should we parent in light of this book how should i live how should i parent okay so seven lessons that i think you should teach your children from the book of ecclesiastes lesson number 1 is that what is crooked cannot be made straight and i get this right from ephesians i mean ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 15 That's what it says there. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And that's the reason why all is vanity. You see, we live in a world that is corrupted by sin. And since the fall of man, this world, our world, has been crooked. And everyone in it, crooked. That means that you and I, we were born crooked. Born into a crooked world and born crooked. And we are not able to make straight what is crooked. Part of the big frustration of the preacher, the the writer of Ecclesiastes, that he feels is that we try everything to make straight what is crooked, only to find that it's still bent. It's still crooked. I don't want to frustrate my children by making them think that either this world is mostly straight or they are. Or that they can, in themselves, straighten themselves out. If I do that, the big lesson of Ecclesiastes is lost on me. Teaching them the crookedness of this world and the crookedness of them and us means helping them to see that this life is corrupted and this world is full of evil and their hearts, hear me friends, their hearts are full of sin. And that's the root cause behind all the vanity that the preacher sees. It is because sin that everything is vanity. Here are three ways that that crookedness affects us. First, this crookedness, the crookedness of the world, is why our lives are so brief. Our lives are a mere breath. That's literally what the word, the Hebrew word that's translated vanity means. It means breath. We don't live forever in this world, in these bodies. We will all one day die. That's the crookedness that we cannot straighten out. No matter what you do, you can can push hard against that. Lots of rich people push hard against that. They even freeze their brains. You can't make straight what's crooked. We can't straighten that out. And how good it is to help our children see the brevity of life so that they don't waste so much of it You don't have time, young people, you do not have time to lay on the couch of your parents for 30 years. You don't have time to begin adulting at 35. We have one shot. And in a child's smaller perspective, it seems like that shot will never end, but it it does. You know, it helps me that I'm pushing 50 years old. I'm likely past the halfway point now unless I really eat my Wheaties. So I look forward. I I, I believe I have less time than I've already spent. And that's helpful for me because I can look back and I know that that time went screaming quick, like really fast. I'm sensing the brevity of my life. And that is a crookedness that I cannot make straight. Second, because things are crooked, This life has suffering and evil in it. Things are not as they should be. And it doesn't help your children to not teach them this. They will be confronted by evil. And hardship. And suffering. And fathers. Part of your job is to equip them for that confrontation. And third, we cannot make straight the crookedness of our own hearts. I am sinful, and all my efforts to not be that won't help in the end, not in and of themselves. I need help that comes from outside of me. My children need help that comes from outside of them. Your children need help that comes outside of them. You need help that comes outside of you. We need a savior Fathers teach them that what is crooked cannot be made straight. What they need is not merely to toe the line of obedience in your home or behavioral modification. Oh, how easy it is for dads, for us dads, to simply demand behavioral modification. Because they can't, but it's, that's not all they need. I mean, I'm not saying that's wrong. We should demand obedience, but that's not all they need. They cannot straighten themselves out by obedience. What they need is Jesus. Fathers and I mothers, grandparents, get that for yourselves. What you need is Jesus, and what your children need is Jesus. The second lesson we should teach our children, fellow dads, is that pleasure in things of this world is also vanity. Let me read quickly Ecclesiastes two one and two. The preacher said, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, This also is vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Now, of course, I mean, if we take the big picture of Ecclesiastes, we know that he's not saying that pleasure is bad or wrong. We can see from Ecclesiastes that pleasure is a gift from God. Pleasure, even even pleasure in things of this world is good. Good. I went for a quick bike ride last night, right at sunset, just popped out, zipped around, watched the beauty of the summer sun setting over the plain, and it made my heart glad. It was pleasurable. And I believe that that is from God. God designed us to enjoy pleasure. He made flowers to be pretty. He made cows to taste good. He made sunsets to be breathtaking and romance to be sweet. It's from God. It's from the hand of God. Yet the pleasure in those things is a mere breath. The sun went down last night. It turned to night. Pleasure is here today and gone tomorrow. It is not ultimate. And it must not be pursued in this world as if pleasure in those things is ultimate. Now, many of these lessons that I'm going to go with you through today are... Best both taught and caught. That is, we cannot, Father, simply say, listen, Junior, pleasure in the things of this world is vanity. You shouldn't pursue pleasure with your whole heart. And then by our actions, by the way that we live, by the way that we pursue our own pleasure, demonstrate that we actually think pleasures in this world must capture our hearts. I wonder what it is that your children would say if they were asked What is the apple of your eye? What is it that captures your heart? What is it that they would say that you, what is it that my children would say that I love most? You know, they're going to think about things that you spend the most time and money and effort trying to have and trying to enjoy. That's going to teach. Do you see what I'm saying? That's going to teach them what is most important to you. I love hunting, I love hiking, I love being outside, but I pray to God that my kids don't think that hunting, etc., is the apple of my eye because it is a mere breath. Fathers, we have to demonstrate this lesson as much as we teach it verbally. And before we do that, before we do that, we must believe it. We must believe that Jesus is the supreme treasure to be had and that nothing in this world holds a candle to him We enjoy pleasure as God's good gift to us. We don't enjoy the gift as if the gift is God. If we believe that, our lives will show it and we will teach this lesson to our children. So teach them, fathers and mothers, that pleasure is vanity. The next lesson we should teach our children is found in chapter two, verses 18 through 26. I don't think I'll read that this morning. You can certainly note that and read it. But the lesson that we must teach our children and one we must believe is that our work and our achievements are vanity. Our work and our achievements are vanity. Now, you know, there is a wrong way to hear that. There's a wrong way to read that in Ecclesiastes. The preacher of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, does not suggest that laziness or apathy are better alternatives, a better way to approach life. In fact, he calls out laziness in chapter four, doesn't he? But what he is saying is that the crucial lesson for us to both learn and to teach our children is that life is not about achieving success. Life is not about our careers. Careers and success are not ultimate. They're not ultimate. And one day, hear me friends, one day it won't matter at all the work that you did here, even if you were very successful. Built a big ranch, earned a lot of money, wrote a lot of books, treated a lot of people. It is, as your life is, a mere breath. And I know that flies in the face of what most of us fathers want to convey to our children, what we want to teach them. So I think we have to walk this nice edge very carefully, dads. We do want to teach our children to work and the value of it. We want to teach them the importance of the work of a man's hands or of a woman's hands. The point we have to help them see, though, is that work is not ultimate. I have counseled so many men, so many couples who put work first as if it was the essence of the meaning of life. I've seen men, smart men, successful men achieve much in this world and choke their marriage until it is dead. Work is not ultimate. And one day, your work won't matter. Fathers, teach your children this. Your ultimate goal with your child is not to see that they may get big in this world. It's not your goal. It's not my goal. That's a vanity, a mere breath. Your little guy might go on to be a brilliant pediatric neurosurgeon and still waste his life. We have to help them see that work is good. It's from God. We do it to glorify him. But it is not ultimate. Fathers, teach your children that. The next lesson to teach your children is that God has made everything beautiful in its time. This is from Ecclesiastes 3.11, and we'll read that because I'm going to draw the next one from that as well. The next point. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Fathers, teach your children that God has made everything beautiful in its time. I think one of the mistakes we make as parents is that we warn our children how ugly things are when we take them out of the time, out of their time, without helping them to see how beautiful they are when they're taken in their time. You know what I mean? We just prohibit. We don't point them to what is good and lovely and right. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Let's take physical intimacy as an example. It's easy for us to teach our children that sex is ugly. And hurtful and harmful and destructive to relationships when it's taken out of its time. It's not hard. Lots of us dads have had that conversation with our kids. It's not beautiful then, it's ugly, enticing, promising, pleasurable, but ugly in the end. I think it is easy to have that talk with our sons and daughters. And our children push back though when that's our only message because to them it looks beautiful. And they're right in a sense. And this is where we have to teach them that it is beautiful in its time, in marriage, the way that God intended it. You see, I think we give the impression to our kids that God is just out there to strike down all the good things. All the most beautiful things. They're prohibited. Because he doesn't want us to enjoy pleasure. He doesn't want us to enjoy this life. We can give that impression to our kids, and that's not the case. As John Piper so well put it, God is not a killjoy. He just opposes what kills joy. And what kills joy, friends, is taking things that are beautiful in their time out of their time, and to enjoy them as if they are in their time. Fathers, this is on us to teach them. God has made everything beautiful in its time. The next lesson also from uh, chapter three, verse 11, is that God has put eternity in our hearts. Fathers, teach your children that that sense of eternity and that longing for joy forever, for joy that doesn't end, teach them that that comes from God He has put that in their hearts and he has done so for a reason. That's why we want everything to be forever. We want marriage to be forever. Not a moment, but it's a moment. We want to be young forever. We want to have pleasure forever. We want that sunset to last forever. We want our lives to matter forever. We want joy forever. And that is because God has put eternity in our hearts. That is a tension. And it's a tension that only resolves with the gospel. This world is not our home. God has made us eternal beings with eternal longings. And this world is a mere breath. Breath. But we will either live in joy forever with him in an everlasting life, or we will perish forever outside of his presence and away from joy in hell. God has put an eternal sense in our hearts, all of us. Doesn't that just explain all of our longings? Doesn't it put that pursuit that you want that drives you into perspective, that quest you feel? God has put the sense of eternity there and he has done so on purpose so that our vapor, our vanity might meet our everlasting in Jesus. I don't know if that's the best way to say that. Best way I could come up with. Everything in life is a vapor and Jesus is forever. And when we hope in him, we realize eternal life. Once and for all, the tension is resolved in Jesus Christ. Your faith in Him, has that tension been resolved for you, friends? The one thing in our experience that is not a mere breath is Jesus. Everlasting hope and joy in Him lasts everlasting. So let's teach our children this. It will put their pursuits, their work, even their desire for pleasure into the context of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross, rose again, so that we might live in him forever. That means that this world is not our home, and it doesn't get our hearts. It means that we don't set our minds on things around us, but on things above. Listen to how Paul put it in Colossians 3, 1-4. That passage says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Fathers, teach your children that God has put eternity in our hearts. The next lesson, lesson number six, that we must teach our children and learn ourselves is that two are better than one and that three are better than two. I get that from Ecclesiastes chapter four, nine through 12. Maybe, yeah, we could read that. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And again, if two lie together, They keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And then it goes on to talk about how three, a three-strand cord is not easily broken. So two are better than one and three are better than two. I think that makes two powerful points that we need to help our children to see. First, that truth shows us the futility of living for yourself. You want to know how to waste your life? You want an easy recipe for how to waste your life? I can, I can give you one in three words. Live for yourself. Live only to please yourself. You do you. And you love you. And you live for you. Do that, friend, and you will be most miserable and you will waste your life. God has not designed us to live that way. And second, on the other side of that, this truth shows us the rightness and the goodness of doing life in community. And I'm just going to put this really into practical terms. I'm I'm skipping a lot of good teaching that I could do at this moment to try to drive this home and prove the point. But I, I think I've kind of done that already. But to put this in really practical terms, doing life in context of the local church. Serving one another, loving one another, praying for one another, living this life to bless one another. Two are better than one, and three are better than two. Fathers, teach your children this. And again, like a lot of things here, this is caught more than it's taught. Your own priority and affection for the local church, for community, for the body of Christ, will be the most compelling lesson to your child. Conversely, if church is what you do when you don't have anything else going on a Sunday morning, that will teach too. That teaches. Not good things, but it teaches. It will teach us the preeminence of sports or recreation or how important a lazy Sunday is to us. Oh, fathers, teach your children the value of community, the community of faith. Teach it with your feet. Teach it with your heart. Let church be the reason, as someone has said, let church be the reason you miss everything else on, for on Sunday morning. Not, not the other way around. Everything else, the reason you miss church. All right, last but not least, lesson number seven, fathers, teach your children to fear God. Teach them that God is the one that they must look to and trust and follow and obey and love and fear. I mean, he is their God, right? He is the maker. He is their maker. He is creator of heaven and earth. He's our sustainer. He's our salvation. God is the one you must fear. Remember, what is crooked cannot be made straight, right? Right? We cannot save ourselves. You need to teach them that lesson so that they turn to Christ by faith and fear God through Him. Christ is the one who makes straight what is crooked. Christ is the one who brings everlasting hope and joy and life to us. Christ is the reason we have eternity in our hearts. Fathers, teach your children this. Teach them the glories of Christ. They get this wrong. They get everything wrong. Young people, you get this wrong. You get everything wrong. And when this life, your vapor finally fades, and I promise you that'll be a lot quicker than you think, your hope fades too. (laughs) But not if you fear God. Not if your heart is taken with Christ. Not if you live your life with your eyes on him, your faith in Jesus, your feet following his will for you. When you fear him, you come to the end and you won't feel like you have wasted your life. You might not even be looking back. You will be looking ahead with hope to all the glories of Christ that are about to explode in revelation to you. God in Christ and through faith in Him is the one you must fear. Fathers, teach your children that. What an incredible influence! we dads have in the lives of our children. Dads, you have an incredible influence over your children. That ought to feel weighty this morning to you. Heavy. Good. And I just want to encourage you dads, one dad to another, wield it well. Teach them these seven lessons for their good. This will serve them well. Teach them for their good and teach them for God's glory. Dads, in light of Father's Day, here's a challenge for you men. Here's a challenge. In all seriousness and earnestness from my heart, I want to ask you to do this. Why not take a bit of time this afternoon and consider the lessons that you're actually teaching your children? and make whatever corrections you need to make for their good and for God's glory. They need these lessons and men, they need you to teach them them and women too. So I just want to encourage you and challenge you. And by the way, if you have a father, if you have a father who has taught you this, Oh, how you ought to rejoice in God and in his grace to you. That is God's grace. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that we would not be lost in our little moment, but that our eyes would be on Jesus Christ. Our hope in him. Lord, I pray for all the dads in this room who might be feeling conviction in this moment. I pray that they would just resolve with that conviction to teach their children to fear you and give them strength to do that encouragement. And Lord, for the dads who are feeling guilty, I pray that they would turn in that guilt to Christ and find the forgiveness that is there and resolve to follow you. You are so good to us. Indeed, you are a good, good father.